0: As I'm getting started, I want to uh, publicly say thank you to Brad Evans for filling in for me last week. Um, you know, I literally I was I was sitting right here, Matt and Blake, and I were doing a little seminar, and um, partway through the seminar, and I looked at them and I said, "I'm sick, I'm leaving." And I, I walked into my office and I put on a fleece. It was 105 degrees outside. Put on a fleece and I shook and I laid on my couch and slept for several hours. And I tried to pull a message together. And then I called Brad. You know, I talked to him a Saturday afternoon. You're on. So I mean, imagine you know Saturday afternoon, and he had to speak the next morning. Imagine if I'd called you. So I just want to say thank you to Brad for doing that. Uh, I also want to point out to you, um, we've had a lot of questions about ways that we could maybe help out uh, with families over in Bastrop and these other areas that uh, have been hit by the fires. Uh, we have. There's another Bible church over in Bastrop, and we're in communication with them. Uh, they're just they're trying to figure out what's going on. But this week we will post some information on our website about how we can help out with that. So it may be uh, financial donations, it may be food, clothing, other stuff, but check our website and we'll give you some info on that. Uh, Third thing I want to point out, if you are uh, in a Bible study and you'd maybe like to follow along with Romans, what we're studying on Sunday morning, and do that in your Bible study, we've got several home church groups that are doing that. So uh, Monday mornings, Blake and I are um, writing up a set of questions that correspond to the Sunday sermon. So if you go to our website... Click on Downloads, and then go down to Study Questions. There's just a small set of questions that you could cover uh, in your Bible study or your home church group or whatever to follow along with Romans. Uh, If you wanted to get into it a little more in depth, we also have posted in our Bible studies section uh, our previous Roman study. That's just for Romans 1 through 8. It doesn't cover 9 through 16, but 1 through 8 will get you through uh, this semester and major part of the spring uh, if you'd like to follow along like that. Okay, so we're back in Romans, but actually we're going to start in the book of Acts this morning. So turn to Acts chapter 7. That's where we'll be first. And as we begin, I'd like to ask you a question. How do you introduce yourself? Of course you say your name first, but what you say next is really important because it communicates probably something that you value highly. We like to put our best foot forward forward So when we introduce ourselves, we talk about our our, uh, favorite associations or roles in this world. So the way that we introduce ourselves says a lot about us. Uh, You might introduce yourself uh, in typical American fashion based upon what you do as a job. Americans think that who we are is what we do. So, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a builder. Brian, hi, Brian, I'm a pastor. We think about what we do. Sometimes we think about our stage in life. I'm a I'm father, I'm a husband, or I'm a student, I think stage in life, we think sometimes a skill, it's really important to us. I'm a, I'm a singer, I'm a guitar player, I'm a drummer, uh, or an association, I'm a tri Delta. I'm Kyle Omega, I'm in Bucks, I'm an AMC, you know, there are a variety of things that are really important to us that we communicate, or maybe you say on certain occasions, I'm a Sagittarius, what are you, you know, or whatever is important to you, right? You know, I, I in this town, I, I frequently say I'm an Aggie, you know, I, I get, that's, yeah, uh, I get good response from that and it's true. Um, my wife is not an Aggie, I know, that's right, I say that a lot, she went to Oklahoma State University, I know, yeah, I love her too. So one time we were up in Oklahoma and visiting her family, we were walking through a mall and we we passed an Eskimo Joe's. As we were going by Eskimo Joe's, she turns to me and she says, hey, do you want me to get you an OSU (laughs) t-shirt? No? No, 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 I mean, we had like a marriage moment there, I'm like, no, what what are you, are you kidding? No, of course, no, I don't want to. No, what? Wait, I mean, it just—it was just. What are you? How could you think that? You know, we, we're just stuck there in the mall. You know, baffled. She goes, "Well, I wear Aggie shirts sometimes." So I go, "Yeah." <laughs> I mean, really? Who wouldn't? Right? Right? You know? It's like you're comparing apples and. Oranges, right? And I'm not, not going to wear OSU orange, and I'm not going to wear burn orange. So that, that's, that's, who, that's not who I am, and what I'm wearing may reflect who I am. No. So last week, though, I took my wife down to Houston. She was speaking at a women's kickoff event for their, their Bible study, and so I was walking through a, a room full. It was all, all women, you know, in this church. It was all women everywhere. And so as I was walking through, though, I did uh, associate myself properly. I said, I'm Tristie's husband. You know, I got a lot of mileage out of that. And if you know my wife, anywhere I go, I get a lot of mileage out of saying, Yeah, that's who I am. I'm her husband. I'm related to her. We all have these ideas in our mind. We identify ourselves by the things that we value, the things that are important to us. Now, as you are reading the New Testament letters, pay attention. To the way that the authors introduce themselves. A lot of times you hit the first verse of a book and man, you just fly through it. Let's get to the meat of the thing. But the way that the author introduces himself is really critical. The author is saying something very important about himself. When we look at the book of Romans, Paul is introducing himself to the Roman church. You realize Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. Peter didn't plant the church in Rome. The church in Rome really was a self-planted church, probably by people who were present at Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down. They were from Rome. They saw this. They heard the gospel. They went back to Rome and began the church. Or maybe people who had bumped into Paul or Peter or another apostle out on one of their travels and then brought the gospel back to Rome, but an apostle hadn't planted this church. Paul hadn't planted this church. And so when he introduces himself to this church, it really is for the first time. They don't know him. And he doesn't know them. And so he says a few things about himself. Now, of course, they, they knew a lot about Paul, because right? this is uh, 56, 57 AD. Paul's been a believer for several years. He's a pretty famous Christian. So there are things that they know about the Apostle Paul. For example, they knew that before Paul knew Jesus, he was a Roman citizen, which was huge. Uh, he had the, the legal rights of being a citizen of Rome. And not everyone who lived in the Roman Empire had this. This is very important for Paul and for his identity. Roman citizen, but raised in a a Greek city. So he spoke the Greek language. He knew the Greek culture. He was really a, a very cosmopolitan man. He was a man of the world. However, he was raised in a Jewish family. But a devout Jewish family, a family that followed the law. They were not secular in any respect. Uh, they were so devout, in fact, that they saved their money and they sent Paul to one of the greatest teachers of the day. They sent him to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. It'd be like getting to go to Texas A&M rather than OSU, <laughs> right? Okay, So Paul is highly educated, highly devout. Studying under Gamaliel, he becomes a Pharisee. Now, the word Pharisee means, literally, one who is set apart. The Pharisees saw themselves as the super-religious within the only true religion. They saw themselves as the most pious, the most godly people who existed on the planet at that point in time. And within that group, Paul saw himself at the top of the heap. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He said, as to zeal, you know, I, I was just the most zealot and devout of the followers of the law. As to the law, he said, I was found blameless. I kept it in every respect. In every respect. Now, not surprisingly, this group, generally speaking, Paul in particular, were not all that humble. Paul was an incredibly self-righteous person, as were most of the Pharisees. Luke records a parable that Jesus told one time. It says, Jesus told this parable to some people, Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and as a result, they viewed others with contempt. And then he goes on and he tells a parable about Pharisees. Paul was a member of this group, Paul was among the most self righteous of this group. And because of this self righteousness and the zeal for the law, when Christianity began to emerge within Judaism, Paul himself became a persecutor of the church. I want you to read with me in Acts chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 51. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's sermon to the Jewish people. Stephen was a deacon in the early church. Uh, He was a servant. He is preaching a sermon particularly focusing his attention at the end here on the Jewish leaders, on the Pharisees. Chapter 7, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You, have re- you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning Stephen, and witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be called Paul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, busting down doors, entering house to house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul hated Jesus. He hated everyone who followed Jesus. At the end of his life, he would write to Timothy, his most beloved disciple, and he described himself like this. He said, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was a violent aggressor. To Timothy, I was, I was a bad, bad man. I blasphemed because I denied that Jesus was the Son of God, and I persecuted the church. When Jesus Christ came to save people like me, he said, chief of sinners. But then one day, Paul had an encounter with Jesus, and absolutely everything in his life changed should you turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, master? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Three words changed Paul's life. I am Jesus. Paul had considered Jesus a, a, a peasant, a poser, an imposter, a false messiah, leading God's people astray, and now, in a moment of time, in, in, a, in a flash of light, all of a sudden, he realized, Jesus is God, and Jesus is my master. And it changed the way that Paul viewed himself, his world, his mission in life. Turn with me and read with me, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. This morning, we're going to look at four descriptive terms that Paul uses of himself. It says Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, my translation, New American Standard, says bond servant. Uh, a lot of translations follow that as well. They call it uh, a servant. Uh, when I think of the word servant, I have a connotation that's something like this. You know, I think, uh, I think maid or butler or chauffeur. I think of someone who has a choice. That's a servant. It may not be a great job, but it's not dishonorable. You could choose another job or you could choose another employer. But that's not the word that Paul uses. So I'd like for you to take your pen and scratch out the word bondservant and write slave. Because the word that Paul uses is slave. It's a due loss. It's one who has no rights. So, as Paul identifies himself and says, Hey, this is what's first on my mind, and this is what's foremost on my mind, as I introduce myself to a non Jewish audience, I think of myself as a slave, which was a term of dishonor in the Greek world. Paul says, I'm a slave, I don't have rights a term of extreme dishonor to this audience to whom Paul is speaking. Now, not slavery in the sense that we normally think about it in North American terms, because it wasn't primarily a racial issue. A lot of slaves were slaves because their nation had lost a war or a battle, and so they were captured. They might be highly educated. They might be brought into the house and uh, be, be tutors and teachers for the children. Others were slaves because they had taken on debts that they couldn't pay, They would sell themselves into slavery with the hope of purchasing themselves out of slavery later. So it's a little bit different connotation. But in the the Gentile mindset, it is not a positive thing at all. But in the Jewish mindset, Old Testament, New Testament, to be a slave of God was the most high calling that any person could have. Moses was a slave of God Elijah was a slave of God. Joshua was a slave of God. David was a slave of God. You read the letters written by Jewish authors in the New Testament. Peter says, I'm a slave of God. Jude, John, James, Paul, I'm a slave. A slave of God. So for Paul, this was the most important identifying marker for him. Slave, he says, of the Messiah, God's anointed one. Jesus. So when Paul identifies himself, he doesn't refer to his job, he doesn't refer to a hobby, he refers to something that's fundamental to his identity, and that is slave. And what would motivate someone to be a slave of another? Uh, some of you will remember this, others won't, but when I was in high school, uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song. Uh, of course, the song was, You gotta serve somebody. I won't sing it for you, but uh, he says you ought to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I don't know, you know, if Bob was sitting around having a quiet time one day and he came up with those lyrics, but it's a very biblical principle. Okay, when we hit Romans chapter six, Paul is going to develop this concept. You will be a slave of someone because there is no such thing as a perfectly free human. Because we are created beings. We are contingent. We are dependent. We will be slaves to someone or something. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, "...thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from your slavery to sin, you became slaves of righteousness." you will serve one of two masters. You will serve sin and Satan and death, or you will serve God and righteousness and life. Choose who you will serve and choose wisely. Jesus said of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is only one good master and that is Jesus. See, The the yoke is what goes across the shoulder of the oxen. The oxen are not servants. The oxen are slaves. The oxen don't have a choice in the matter. They're slaves. But Jesus says, come and be my slave. He's inviting us. He says, come and be my slave. Why? Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Paradoxically, Slavery to me is the only freedom that you can find. When you identify yourself, have you ever thought of that first? Have you ever said, Brian Fisher, slave. Does that ever come into your mind? One who has no rights, who's surrendered to the will of another, completely devoted. So the first thing that comes to Paul's mind as he introduces himself to this audience. It's going to be shocking to them because it's not an honorable term, but he says, I am Paul. Slave of the Messiah, Jesus. Second thing that Paul says of himself is that he is called. Paul, slave of Messiah, Jesus. Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This word for calling has a wide range of meaning. It can mean something really simple, like just an invitation. I could invite Buck to come to dinner. I could say, I'm just calling him, just calling. Invitation, no pressure. That's one way the word is used, but normally in a theological setting, it's a lot heavier than that. It's uh, one who is superior calling to a subordinate or inferior, and that one needs to answer, and answer quickly. It may be a king calling to the vassal, or God calling to one of his slaves. It's more like a summons. I'm calling, and you will answer. I remember when I was little, my sister and I were, were kids. Sometimes we didn't respond immediately. When our parents called. It didn't happen all the time. But you know, once in a while, we'd you know, just procrastinate. We'd do our own thing. We'd say no. We Whatever. We'd hide. Uh, and my dad would, would say, well, I'll give you to the count of three. Right? You've probably seen that parenting technique. Probably seen it in the, in the mall or at the grocery store you know, or whatever. I'll give you to the count of three. Well, my dad had a technique too. He'd say, I'll give you to the count of three. Three. <laughs> hey, that's how my dad executed it. It wasn't an invitation. It was a summons. Now. Respond, okay? Calling, calling in a biblical sense is a very powerful thing. It is a, it's a transforming thing. When God calls to people, it changes their identity and it changes their mission in life. It changes everything about them. So Paul uses the word calling in several ways. First, as calling to salvation, being called out of darkness into light, being called out of death into life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, as Paul said in Romans 1, this is the gospel. And God is calling. Maybe God is calling you this morning and you just never listened. So many other things that are going on in your life, so many other things by which you want to identify yourself that you don't want to listen when He calls and you don't want to say, Yes, here am I, Lord. Who are you? Are you Master? Maybe the Lord is calling to you. Maybe it's not the first time. Maybe he's been calling a long time, but you've been ignoring his voice. But he's calling again this morning, and here we are in this setting, and you have an opportunity just to listen, really listen. God is calling, and he's saying, I gave you my son, Jesus. And the reason that I sent him was to pay the penalty for the debt of your sin Your sin that separated us, he paid for that. Jesus paid the entire thing. And if you will just listen right now and respond to my calling and say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe Jesus paid for me. If you will do that, I will move you out of darkness into light. I will move you out of death into life. I will move you away from from sin and unrighteousness into what is whole and healthy. You will be transferred. Will you listen? Listen if you have never responded to God's calling on your life for the very first time, let me encourage you to do so. That's that's the most important aspect of calling. But there's a second aspect, and that is we are called who believe to a life of sanctification or a life of holiness to become like Jesus. Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul wrote this. Therefore I, the prisoner, the slave of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That word for worthy means literally to balance the scales. You have been called. You have been purchased with the precious blood of an unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ. That's in one, on one side of the scale. Now, walk in a manner that is worthy of this, this purchase price that God has paid. Become like Jesus. Jesus calling to salvation, calling to sanctification or a life of holiness, calling to represent God in all of the arenas of life and reflect Jesus Christ. And then there's a third way in which the word is used, and that is called to specific roles of service in the kingdom of God. Moses was called by God. Moses was out in the wilderness. He's going through his normal daily exercises of of leading his father's sheep around and he sees a bush that starts to burn but it's not consumed and God calls to him from that bush. And it wasn't merely an invitation. Moses wanted to treat it like an invitation but it was a summons. Moses, it's a role for you. What I want you to do is I want you to rescue my people out of slavery and bring them into freedom, that is, slavery to me. Ezekiel was called. He was just going through the motions of his life. He was uh, by a river and all of a sudden heaven opened up. He saw a vision of the throne room of God and God said, Ezekiel, I'm calling you to a specific role in my kingdom. I want you to go and bang your head against a wall. <laughs> okay, that's what he wanted Ezekiel to do. He said, Ezekiel, I'm gonna send you to really stubborn people. I'm just gonna make you more stubborn. This is your calling. Call them to repent and stop their sinning. God called Paul. Paul. As he was running away from God, thought he was working for God, but running away from God, persecuting the church, and God sends a blinding light, and Jesus calls and says, Paul, I have a calling for you. And your calling is this, specifically, I want you to be an apostle. Which literally means one who is sent. It was used in secular Greek of of a messenger, an ambassador, one who is not carrying his own message, he's carrying a message on behalf of another. But it was used in the New Testament of a specific group of men. Apostle, capital A. Okay, it began with the disciples, the 12 disciples. Judas left. They had to find another. So they brought in Matthias. Those 12, but it included Barnabas and later uh, Andronicus and Junius. Paul's going to talk about them in Romans 16. And then last of all, Paul apostles who were given a specific commission, and that was establish the church, which is a new work of God. It's a mystery form of the kingdom of God. This is new revelation. And so you will go out and you'll, you'll lay the foundation for this. Specifically, this is your calling, to be an apostle, one who is sent, sent for a specific purpose, to lay the foundation of the church. And it was new stuff. Now, remember, Peter was the one who opened up the door of the gospel and open up the church to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 was dramatic. The early believers couldn't understand. What what do you mean? They don't have to become Jews first. They don't have to observe the law. They don't have to observe all the dietary restrictions and everything else. We can eat all of these different foods. We can defile ourselves by association. We could actually be one people, Jews and Gentiles sitting together at a meal, Jews together worshiping the same way. Yeah, Peter, open it up. Because this is what God had originally promised through Abraham. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to gather to myself one family from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is the church. And Peter opened the door for that. But then Paul was specifically given the commission. Paul, you lead the charge, and you're the one who's going to take the gospel to all of the Gentile nations. Look with me in verse 5, chapter 1. Paul says, through whom, that is through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and we have received apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is why God set me apart. Galatians chapter 1, he reiterates this point. He says, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now there's an interesting little play on words here. That word set apart, he uses it in Romans chapter one, one as well. Set apart. It's a play on words with the word Pharisee. It's aphorizo. A Pharisee is one who set apart and Paul saw himself set apart way above everybody else. And looking down upon them, not responsible for them, but condemning them for their unrighteousness. And now God steps into his life with a blinding light and he realizes, no, from my mother's womb, God had destined me to set me apart for the gospel. An encounter with Jesus Christ, whether we realize it at the moment or not, completely reorients our lives. Paul says, now... I'm set apart for the gospel. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Fourth characteristic, he says, I'm a debtor. Look with me in verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That word uh, under obligation means literally to have a financial debt that you've got to pay. Paul says, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, that is, those who are uh, cultured. They're Greek. They know the language and culture of Greece. They're cultured people. And those who are barbarians, that is, uncultured people, both to the wise, that is, those who have an education, and to the foolish, those who do not have an education. In other words, he wraps his arms around the entire Gentile world and he says, I got a debt. I have a duty. I have an obligation. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, makes the same point. He says, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Oh, I'd be miserable if I didn't. Why? I'm under compulsion. I'm under obligation. Does that sound like duty? You know, in, in churches like ours where we emphasize the grace of God, duty often becomes a really bad word. But you were bought with a price. The precious blood of a, of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You're in debt. You don't, you don't earn eternal life. It's given to you as a free gift. The reason it's given as a free gift is there's nothing you could do to pay for it. But having been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are, we're debtors, we're under obligation. It's duty. But it's not drudgery. Paul would say later in Ephesians chapter 3, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul says, this is the greatest debt that I could possibly have. This is the greatest compulsion, the greatest obligation, the greatest duty to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. I am a slave. I am a debtor who is rich. And what is my stewardship and my obligation? To give it away. I'm a debtor. And so Paul says, I've got to come to Rome. Why Rome? Simply put, Rome was the most influential Gentile city in the world at that point in time. Paul says, I got to get there because my obligation is the world. It's the Gentile world. It's those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to build on another man's foundation, but I got to get to Rome. And there were three purposes that Paul wanted to fulfill in Rome. I want you to read with me chapter 1 again, verse 14. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, that is, cultured and uncultured, both to wise and to foolish, that is, educated and uneducated. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Three reasons. First, to strengthen their faith. Go back to verse 8 with me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now but at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, and here's the reason, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established or literally so that you may be strengthened. That is, this is what I mean by imparting a spiritual gift, Paul says, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine, that we may strengthen one another. And what is it that Paul brought to the table? What could he give them that would strengthen them? Well, remember, this is a church that was basically self-established, and so what Paul can bring to them is the theological basis reaching all the way back into the Old Testament and reaching all the way into the future. He can bring them the theological basis for the gospel itself, okay, for, the, for the good news. So what you see in the book of Romans is in chapter 1 and then in chapters 15 and 16, some of the reasons Paul wrote, but then the whole rest of the book, the meat of the book, is about the gospel. Because Paul is helping them lay a theological foundation for their faith. For the other churches that he wrote to, most of them, he had planted those churches or he had visited those churches so he could communicate verbally the very foundation of the faith. He hadn't met this group. He hadn't been to this church. So he writes his longest theological treatise to a group of people he's never seen before. And he says, this is the gospel. It is the power of God. It is the righteousness of God. It is the fact that God is always right. God's character itself is the standard. He is right. And because of his character, he always acts consistently with his character. Everything he does in the world is right and righteous. He has made promises, and because he's faithful, he will act in accordance with his promises. That is righteousness. And what God has promised is simply this, to set the entire world right. Everything is broken, everything is marred, everything is flawed in the world, but God made a promise. Rather than abandoning this world physically, the creation, and rather than abandoning mankind who had fallen, he says, no, I will not give up. I will put it all to right. This is the righteousness of God. And how will I do it? I'm going to do it through my promised son. And all of you can participate in me setting it right when you believe in the son. This is the gospel. So he lays this huge and powerful and important theological foundation for them. Okay? He's also laying a theological foundation for the understanding of the very nature of the church. Right? Remember, the, the biggest problem the church faced early in its life which it still faces today was a breakdown in relationship between races between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers if God's plan was originally given through promises made to Israel. How does Israel fit into all of this when they seem to be outside of the plan of God? And how can these Gentiles get in so easily? How can it just be free to them and they don't have to keep the law? And how can we have fellowship with one another and be one people when our cultures are so different and our religious practices are so different? And so Paul helps the church understand its very nature, but he also helps the church understand its mission in the world. Second reason that Paul wrote was to broaden their influence Look with me in chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. And I have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles or as among the, re- the rest of the non-Jewish world. Paul says, I, I want to get to Rome because I want to see more believers in Rome. At the time Paul wrote, there were five house churches in Rome, And they had small houses. So imagine a house church maybe had 30 people in it, five house churches of 30 people. There were 150 believers in Rome, a city of probably 1 million people at the time. Paul says, we're just getting started. 150 believers in a city of one million, I want to come and I want to help you broaden your influence among your friends and your family members. I want to teach you how to proclaim the good news of the riches, unfathomable riches, of Jesus Christ. Third, he wants to awaken their calling. Look with me in Romans chapter one, verses five through seven. As we're reading these verses, uh, if the men who are serving communion could go back and get that prepared for us. Read with me Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says here. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying is, you are all called. Calling isn't, isn't just for apostles. Calling isn't just for people like Moses or prophets. Calling isn't just for the super spiritual. He says, among whom you too, Roman believers, you are called. You are the called of Jesus Christ. And what is your calling? Well, Your calling is, it's it's Rome. It's a city of a million. And I want to come and I want to be with you because I want to help you fulfill your calling of reaching out to your friends and your family and your neighbors. Because you're debtors, because you were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. I want to help you fulfill your obligation and your duty. Oh, and by the way, I want you to help me fulfill my calling as well. Okay, remember the purposes are in chapter one and in chapters 15 and 16. The setting of Paul writing the book of Romans is from Corinth. He's writing from Corinth. He's on his third missionary journey. He's been traveling around, and now he's stopped in Corinth, and he's there for a while, and he's writing letters to different places. And on this third journey, he collected an offering, because there was a famine in Judea. And the Gentile believers, where Paul had been, had a duty To other believers, because we are one body. And so Paul collected this offering to these famine-plagued people at another church back in Jerusalem. But he has stopped in Corinth for a period of time. He's about to head back and deliver this offering. And he writes to the church in Rome. He says, now I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm going to drop off this offering. And one of the functions of this offering, beyond just meeting the physical needs, is it's going to heal the rift between Jewish and non-Jewish believers that we all care for one another in real and practical and tangible ways. But after I drop that off, you know what? God has called me to go to Spain because nobody's been to Spain yet. No one has heard the gospel in Spain. And when I go to Spain, I want to stop and I want to be refreshed with you and I want you to be my partners in the gospel ministry. This is, Romans, is a missionary letter. Philippians is a missionary letter. Philippians is a missionary letter to a church that Paul had planted who had already partnered with him and it's a report. Romans is a missionary letter to a church that's not involved in spreading the gospel throughout the world and Paul says, I want to help you fulfill your calling and I want you to help me fulfill my calling. And what is your calling? Your calling is to take the gospel to those who are near and to partner with those who are taking the gospel to places that you cannot go. Paul says, will you embrace your calling with me among whom you too are the call of Jesus Christ. It's not just for the super spiritual, it's for all. In you know, this last week, I've um, been reflecting a lot on uh, the events of nine 11. I'm sure a lot of you have thinking about it again this morning. And um, my wife and I have talked about it this week you know, every day it's been a part of our conversation every day and, I'm sure for a lot of you, it's the same thing. I, I, I can remember exactly where I was. It was one of those events. I remember right where I was. I remember what I was doing. I was sitting next to my wife, and we were glued to the television, and we were shocked, and we were uh, in tears. We were amazed. We were, we were amazed at um, men like this who would rush into burning buildings. And many of them, uh, literally, they lost their lives. The building collapsed around them. You know, as the rubble fell and there's fire and smoke. I had friends who were there in New York, friends who got out these buildings, who rushed away. I'm sure for all of us, there were people who were really close to this event. I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking, wow, how remarkable that they would rush in to save others. You know, some, some did escape and they were interviewed afterwards. And as they're interviewed, well, why did you go in? It was almost a question they couldn't understand. What's my calling? <laughs> How could I not go in? What, what, what would you expect? That I'd stand on the curb opposite when I know the way out? No, I'd give my life. And as I was thinking about those events and just that, that painful scar on the landscape of, of our history as Americans, I was thinking about that. I thought, What about us as a church? The world is crumbling. It's crashing down, and we know the way out. We have a calling that is even more important. When you think of yourself, do you think first, beyond any other association, slave of Jesus Christ? Called, called to salvation, called to be like Christ. But yes, called to have a special role in the kingdom of God. Called because I know the way out. I know the way out of death and darkness. I know the way into life and light. I know. Is that a duty? Absolutely. Is it the most glorious duty you could have? Without question, to preach the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. Church, this is why we exist. You don't exist for your job. No matter how great your job is and no matter how much you love your job, you don't exist for your job. You don't exist for your hobby. You don't exist for your club. You exist for Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. We are Christ's. That's it. That's it. You're called of God. And will you reach out and say, yes, God, that's why I am from before I was born, what you made me for, to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ wherever I am. As we share communion, communion is, is a wonderful way to close our service today because it is a reminder that we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So as men come forward in service, I want us just to take a moment quietly and let's meditate upon the price that Jesus Christ paid and the obligation of the debt that we have to those around us I'd like you to hold the bread and the cup and let's take it together after we've been served Jesus on the night he was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and he said this is my body that is broken for you do this in remembrance of me And Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. My blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take the cup together. Father, thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Pray that it would remind us as we take it, the incredible price that you paid so that we could be your children, so that we could be your family. Beloved of you, to all who are called as saints, beloved of God in Bryant College Station. Father, I thank you that you remind us that you have called us to reach those who are near us, those who are far, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us one pure and holy passion, to know you and follow hard after you, in Christ's name. for not one of us lives for ourselves and not one of us dies for ourselves if we live we live for the Lord if we die we die for the Lord therefore whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's may God bless you may God empower you as you go out into the world this week called of Jesus Christ beloved God bless you have a great week